Hey everyone, before we begin, we have an announcement. Actually, it's less an announcement than it is an appeal. We've put this off as long as possible, but to keep the show going in its current format, we need some support from, as the NPR people say, listeners like you. To that end, we've set up a show page on Patreon, which is a website where podcast hosts and other kinds of creators can solicit a small monthly stipend from people who enjoy what they do and want them to keep doing it. We'll keep this less obtrusive than an NPR pledge drive, but I want to take a minute to explain why we're asking for your help. Sam and I have never been paid to do this podcast. When we started, going on four years and 850 episodes ago, the show was just something we decided to do on top of our actual jobs. And when I left Baseball Prospectus about 350 episodes ago, I decided to keep doing it because I enjoy talking to Sam and directing with all of you, and because I didn't want to be the bad guy who kills a podcast people like, and also probably because I'm bad at business. It takes a lot of hours to do a daily podcast. It's not just the talking, planning, and scheduling, but also the editing, uploading, and posting. All the boring but necessary behind-the-scenes stuff that happens between me calling Sam and you hearing our conversation is a one-man effort, and that man is me. Over the years, our episodes have gotten a lot longer and our audience has gotten a lot larger, which means that our hosting costs are higher and production takes more time. Our Play Index sponsorship no longer comes close to covering those costs, and while the show sounds much better than it did before, that quality has come at cost to my sanity and sleep schedule. Our goal in asking you to support us on Patreon is to make it feasible for us to preserve the podcast in its current form, to keep it free to download so that anyone can access it, and ideally to do both of those things without subjecting you to the same ads for stamps and audiobooks and daily fantasy leagues that you skip past on other podcasts. We know that not everyone has money to spare on a podcast, but we hope that those of you who do have some disposable income will consider devoting some of your entertainment dollars to us. If you're a regular listener, you're getting a lot of hours out of Effectively Wild. This month, for example, we're doing 24 episodes and producing something like 18 hours of audio. As Sam has often observed, we all talk about baseball to avoid dwelling on our impending deaths, which means that we're giving you 18 hours this month during which you're not contemplating your mortality. We hope that's worth something. So please go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash effectivelywild, and become a patron of the show. You can give as little as a couple dollars a month or as much as the complete contents of your bank account. We've also added a few rewards for higher monthly donations in case the satisfaction of having helped sustain the show isn't incentive enough. It's easy to set up a recurring payment, and it's also easy to cancel in case we get the yips and lose our ability to talk about baseball. A percentage of the revenue generated will go to BP, which pays for hosting and gives us this platform, but the majority of the money you contribute will go to me and Sam so that we can keep doing a daily show while earning enough to eat avocados and dinners at diners in the stupidly expensive metropolitan markets where we've both made the dumb decision to live. Thanks for making it possible for the podcast to survive. And now, please enjoy the episode you were actually hoping to hear. And welcome to episode 841 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Baseball Reference Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo. Talking about the Blue Jays today. Later in the show, George Bissell will talk to Shai Davidi, who covers the Blue Jays for Sportsnet. 
But we are talking not to the author of the BP Annual this time. Dustin Parks wrote that essay but was unavailable. But fortunately, Baseball Prospectus has just added another local site to its collection, BP Toronto. And we are talking to the co-editor-in-chief of BP Toronto and the co-host of the Blue Jays Plus podcast, which is now also at BP Toronto, Joshua Hassam. Hey, Joshua. Hey. So back when I was a more partisan person and had a team allegiance, thinking specifically of 2003, the Yankees had the Aaron Boone game, beat the Red Sox. I was at that game. It was fantastic. And that felt like winning the World Series to the degree that when the Yankees lost the World Series to the Marlins, it kind of didn't bother me that much. It, it felt like the real battle had been won. Do Blue Jays fans have that feeling at all from Game 5 of the ALDS, or was the ALCS let down real? Uh, well, I think that if you asked them now, they would definitely say that the Game 5 and the crazy seventh inning and the bat flip made everything worthwhile. Mm-hmm. But if you were around after that Kansas City series and the way it ended with the bad umpiring and you know just choking away runner on third, nobody out, people were really depressed for a good month or so afterwards. So I think there's a lot of revisionist history going back, but it was still the greatest moment of many Blue Jays fans' lives. Yeah, it may have been the, the greatest moment of my life also, and I have no no rooting interest in the Blue Jays, but it was <laughs> that good. Um, and I, I mean, was it particularly disappointing because the Blue Jays had had such a long drought that they didn't completely capitalize on it? Or was there any feeling of, hey, we got here and that in itself was such a huge victory that the rest is gravy? You know, it's funny. I would have guessed that it would have been the latter just going in because it had been 22 years since the team made the postseason. But as that team just rolled through August and September and then that crazy comeback against the Rangers, people started really believing this was the best team in baseball. So when they lost, people sort of felt really disappointed just in the concept that they thought they had the team that should have won the World Series. And mm-hmm. then it was immediately followed by Anthopolis leaving and Price leaving. And so people didn't really have the chance to digest the fact that, hey, this was awesome how far we got. Mm-hmm. All right. So team was eliminated for the playoffs. Fans were disappointed. We have established that. <laughs> uh, so what do people think of Alex Anthopoulos and his exit this offseason? Was he seen as as a hero, as a martyr, the way that that he left the team? Is he missed and beloved? Of course, his his tenure wasn't always smooth. There were times when he was on a wobbly chair himself or or was according to media reports. So what is his legacy, do you think, as a Blue Jays GM? He is deified. If you ask the Jays fans now, he would be on the level of excellence just because of last season. Uh-huh. And it really hurt Shapiro, too, because he comes in and all of a sudden he's Darth Vader to this team, to yeah. his fan base. It's like He led our hero, our golden boy, who just happens to be Canadian, out the door. So Anthopoulos, even though he kind of bailed, he just sort of left, didn't want to be here anymore. He still can do no wrong in the eyes of Toronto fans. I guarantee you he doesn't have to pay for a meal here. Mm -hmm. And is there any read, any early read on Ross Atkins and the the Shapiro regime? Yeah, well, the first thing you sort of notice is they really focused on process, whereas Anthopoulos was sort of fly by the seat of his pants. Hey, let's go get Tulewitzki. Let's go get Price. Mm -hmm. But. One thing I've really noticed that they've done and a very good job of doing is adding depth pieces, which was really a problem with Anthopolis. I mean, last year, I think the Jays got 15 to 20 starts out of guys like Scott Copeland and Todd Redmond and everybody like that. Felix Dubrant got five. Whereas this year, there's eight guys that are legitimate major league starter types that are in camp, all of whom can be kept and used as depth. So 
Okay, I'm going to segue from that into the other thing. Okay, so. <laughs> Very smooth. Yeah, <laughs> smooth. Classic, classic Sam segue. All right, so uh, my favorite fun facts about the Blue Jays for 2016 are that uh, at four of the nine positions, they are projected to be the best team in the American League at catcher, uh, third base, shortstop, and DH. No team projects to get more value than the Blue Jays. I didn't even mention right field which is where arguably their best player, Jose Bautista, plays, or maybe their second best player, plays. And so that gives you a sense of how good uh, this lineup is, how good their hitters are. Further making that case is that their projected true average is not just the best in baseball, but the gap between them and the number two Red Sox is the same as the gap between the number two Red Sox. Well, it's actually bigger than the gap between the number two Red Sox and the 13th best AL team. So only two AL teams are even below that spread. So they are extremely good at a number of positions, and they don't really have a, a hole at any position. They are within one-tenth of a win of being better at all nine positions than the Marlins are at six positions. <laughs> so they're very good. Uh, and then meanwhile, uh, Pakoda projects them to win 84 games and have a 45% chance of making the postseason. Uh, which is, uh, you know, it's easy to figure out where Pakota feels that way. It does not like the rotation at all. Like it has the rotation as like a bottom three rotation. So can you make the case that in fact, this rotation is a championship caliber rotation? Well, I, I think I could make the case that it's championship caliber if it pitches like a league average one, <laughs> just because of that offense you mentioned. I mean, part of what Pakota doesn't like, I mean, there are reasons not to like Marco Estrada, reasons not to like Jay Happ, but both those guys have done things in the last season that they weren't doing before. And Pocota looks at their entire history, which was for both of them pretty bad. Last year, Marco Estrada started throwing up in the zone way more than he has ever, uh, which I actually just wrote about this on Baseball Perspectives Toronto. But what he was doing with his high spin rate by throwing up in the zone, batters were popping the ball up at extreme rates. His hard hit contact dropped by 10% from his late career average. And then Hap went to work with you know the pitching guru over in Pittsburgh <laughs> And he came back and all of a sudden he's throwing over the top more and getting outs. And Marcus Stroman, it predicts 160 innings. But if he throws 200, it's a lot better. Basically, there's a lot of upside in those guys that if even one or two of them hits it, it, the Jays rotation will be at least league average. And with this offense, that's a championship team. Yeah. So uh, Jeff Long wrote a piece looking at whether the Blue Jays have more upside than a a typical team of this uh, quality of rotation do you i mean you kind of you kind of buy that like is it fair to say that in fact uh Pakoda maybe is correct about the overall assessment of them like the mean projection but that in fact uh, there is a, a lot more upside here or do you disagree with either of those halves well uh, I, I i agree in general i think that Pakoda might have their floor a little bit lower than i would expect mm-hmm. it, it just i don't think that it's likely that a guy like estrada or hap will fall back to a four and a half era type pitcher Obviously, ERA is not the perfect measure of talent, but when it comes to what happens on the field, it's pretty good. But yeah, it, I mean, there's a lot of upside there. And then in the bullpen, which can hide a lot of rotation flaws, there's a lot of upside as well. Is there ever a pitcher, though, who has a good season where you can't, after the fact, point to something he did differently? I mean, the whole point is that most guys who have seasons that aren't consistent with their career uh, regress toward their career. But if you look, can't you find something like, you know, everybody threw more changeups or everybody got, you know, did better against lefties or everybody's healthy for the first time or everybody worked with a pitching coach. Like, there's always something, isn't there? 
Yeah. And if I can interject it, there was a lot written about Marco Estrada last year and how he was able to defy his FIP and induce soft contact and all of that. And and it could be true that there were real reasons that he was able to do that and that his low BABIP wasn't just luck, but maybe it was a product of him doing certain things perfectly that are still really difficult to continue doing that perfectly. So, you know, even if it was legitimate in a sense, it might still be difficult to sustain. Yeah, I, I would actually agree with that. I mean, especially with the habit. I mean, you know, when you're that big and that your mechanics are that all over the place for your career, it's hard to say he's going to pitch like Clayton Kershaw like he did for the Pirates. But with Estrada specifically, I mean, you 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 alluded to the fact that every pitcher, there's like, there's something they did differently. But he did a whole bunch of things differently, which is sort of what made it seem more sustainable. He started throwing his cutter a lot more, which he'd never really done. And he just started, he started using his curveball and changeup at different rates. So when you're doing everything so differently and pitching in a different location, it makes you think that at least if they try to do it again, there's a chance they can repeat something close. He's not going to be leading the league in opponent's batting average again, but even half an, a run added to his ERA seems reasonable. Where do you stand on the great debate of our times, the Aaron Sanchez reliever rotation debate? <laughs> I'm kind of hard in on Sanchez as a starter. Just because of what we just sort of talked about with, with the Jays rotation, there's a lot of guys that are okay, but he's one of the guys who has chance to be great. You know, he throws 98 mile an hour sinkers and a good, his curveball is developing. If he can take a step forward, then he could be the true number two behind Stroman that this team really wants. And if he can, you can always shuffle him back to the to the bullpen. Yeah, just like uh, just like Jabba Chamberlain and... Uh... <laughs> always <laughs> works. Well, they hey, they did it with him last year and it worked just fine. Yeah. Do uh, most most deadline trades are uh, heavily aimed at improving that year's uh, postseason chances. They're, you know, the value is usually kind of front loaded because it is the clear and present challenge in front of a team. If let's say the Blue Jays had made the Troy Tulowitzki trade not in July, but but yesterday, how would you feel about it? Just uh, as far as where it leaves them or, or what they should get out of it going forward? Well, I think I would have been slightly less excited than I was at the time just because he was so bad for the Blue Jays after they acquired him, but he's still Troy Tulowitzki and a massive, massive upgrade on, well, <laughs> definitely Jose Reyes now, but even Jose Reyes, if he hadn't been facing a 90 plus game suspension for domestic abuse. But I think that any Jays fan, regardless of when that happened, would love to have Troy Tulowitzki in their lineup for the next few years. And if there were any players in that lineup who really exceeded expectations last year, I guess it would be Kevin Pillar and Chris Calabello, perhaps, are they regression candidates or are they just good? <laughs> well, I think Calabello is the absolute clear regression candidate. I think his BABIP was like 440 or something like that. <laughs> A lot of ground balls finding holes. Pillar actually didn't really outperform his career numbers by a whole lot. Uh, you know, The previous year, he hit 267, 295, 397. Last year was 278, 314, 399, which is the type of progression you could expect from someone as they hit their 20, age 26 season. So mm -hmm. I think Pilar, you can reasonably think he's going to do that again. But I mean, Colabello is, <laughs> he's not going to hit 320 again. <laughs> and do you foresee a, an amicable resolution, a satisfactory resolution to the Blue Jays and Batista contract negotiations? And, and for you, what would that look like? If you'd asked me this question a month ago, I would have said definitely yes. And now I think I'd say definitely no. Just uh -huh. everything they're hearing with both of them is that the Blue Jays really don't want to give them the years that they want. And that's all that the, the hitters seem to care about. For me, I mean, I, I would 
I kind of bet on both of them aging reasonably well. So give a four-year deal to Encarnacion, which is what he seems to want. That would make me happy. And Bautista, well, he wants six years. So, <laughs> Right. But I, if you give him three or four, I think you can at least bet that the first couple of years will give you the value to cover the back two. Is it, do you think it's an either or? Like, would you, I mean, it sounds like both of them would be kind of scary with the length given their ages. Would you like to see, I mean, could you swallow the fright if it was just one of them? Or are they, are, are you kind of able to assess those two demands independently of each other? Yeah, I, I think just one of them would be fine. And the, this team, as you sort of mentioned before, has a lot of really good hitters in it in the lineup. And if one of them goes, yeah, it gets a lot worse, but there's still you'll still have Tulowitzki, Donaldson, one of those guys, and Martin going forward. If none of them comes back, I think it could be a problem, though. Mm-hmm. And Marcus Stroman, I think, has established himself as one of the most likable, most easy to root for players in baseball. Is he also someone you're comfortable with as the best starting pitcher on a team? Well, uh, he's you definitely hit the nail on the head, but how easy he is to root for. I don't know if I'd say comfortable though. I'm okay if he if he listens to me saying this, he's gonna you know record this podcast and play it as fuel to get better. Because if you say anything <laughs> negative, he just puts a you know massive adds to the chip on his shoulder to prove you wrong. I think he has the upside and a talent to be that guy, but I just wouldn't want to count on it which is what the J seem to be doing. Uh, I want to just circle back to Kevin Pillar real quick. I mean, the the regression that one might expect might be in his defense, which was like extremely, extremely, extremely good. Like he might have been the second or third most valuable defender in baseball outside of, of catchers last year. And uh, I know he's I know he's quite good. I trust that he's quite good. But do you think that there is, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, do, how, how much does he look like Andrew Jones in his prime out there and how much I mean where would you put him among you know defensive center fielders realistically going forward well I think he's definitely going to still be an above average guy because if you watch him last year he gets really good reads on the ball (laughs) but as you mentioned his stats were I think he was 22 DRS I mean he was uh his feeling was above average I think was 14 or so he made a lot of diving extreme high difficulty catches that sort of skewed his numbers which you can't really expect him to repeat so I think he sort of settles in as a good center fielder, but not fighting for gold glove awards in a world without Kevin Kiermaier. All right. Well, do you want to give us a win total projection? Oh, geez. <laughs> you have no choice. but I know. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that this team is probably going to win 87, 88 games. I, I find it hard to predict 90 wins for any team in the AL East, just given how deep it is. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you can read Joshua at the newly minted Baseball Prospectus Toronto, and you can find him on Twitter at Joshua Housen. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Stay tuned after the break to hear George talk to Shai Davidi. I took my headphones off and heard the news. Summer imploded and...
Welcome back to Effectively Wild. I'm George Bissell of Baseball Perspectives. Joining me now is Shai Davidi. He covers the Toronto Blue Jays for Sportsnet Canada. You can follow him on Twitter, at Shai Davidi. Shai, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. It's great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Toronto Blue Jays ended a 22-year postseason drought, which at the time was the longest in North American pro sports last season, thanks in large part to an explosive offense that scored nearly 900 runs. They averaged 5.5 per game. Will the Blue Jays make it back to the postseason in 2016? And if not, what has the potential to be the biggest reason why? Well, they should be able to make it back to the postseason. And ultimately... The, the two things that will always keep a team from, you know, reaching its goals or its full potential are injuries, which are uh, always a possibility in the game. And two is that whether or not they're going to pitch well enough. And my sense, just the early impressions through, the, you know, close to the midway point of spring training is that they'll probably have enough pitching to overcome any, any, any overcome the needs over the course of the season. But if they have one or two injuries to key guys, that may be difficult for them. The, those are the things that w- could potentially hold them back, but all things being equal, it looks to me like uh, the makings of a legit contender. Before we go any further, I want to take a step back the last postseason. Uh, we had Jeff Wilson, who covers the Texas Rangers, on a few weeks ago, and he told us that he had never seen anything like that seventh inning a year ago. So I wanted to see if you felt the same way about that now. Uh, and now that you've had a few months to reflect on it, what stands out about that whole experience for you the most? Yeah, that seventh inning is probably the most unique and intense period of sports that I've ever covered. And, you know, I was there in, uh, in 2011, game six, when the Rangers were twice a, a strike away from being the Cardinals in the World Series. I thought, wow, this is something. But that seventh inning was just, it was just so like nothing you've seen before. I mean, that play that led to the go ahead run with that O'Dor scored in the top of the, in the top of the inning, you know, like how many pitches get thrown, how many balls get thrown back in the picture over the course of the season? In, in the, in the hundreds of thousands, mm-hmm. I would say. And that for the odds of that to happen at that moment are so slim. And then, for the Rangers to make three consecutive errors on very makeable plays in the bottom half, and then, you know, Odor misplays a ball that probably should have been caught off Josh Dawson's tie the game, and then the Batista home run, and all the emotions that spilled out after that. It's just, it, it's this, it's not even the stuff of Hollywood, you know, it, it's beyond that. So, uh, it was completely, it was completely the, the most remarkable inning of baseball I've covered, and I don't know that we'll see anything like it in the near future. Yeah, the signature moment from that inning, obviously the Jose Bautista home run, and uh, really what's been interesting is the biggest story of the past few months has been Bautista himself, who's morphed into this sort of lightning rod for criticism because he showed emotion, flipping his bat, you know, after coming through in a huge moment for his team in a playoff game. Do you think that that criticism from some has been unfair, and that he's you know, that he's had to deal with this throughout the off season, And do you feel like the tide is turning in the sense that we're starting to see more emotion, celebration, and that it's going to become a bigger part of the game going forward, like it is in a lot of other professional sports? Well, to me, the, the comments uh, of Bryce Harper, both in the ESPN magazine piece and later the Washington Post, that, that may signify a turning point, too, because it's now you've got an elite young player who's sort of the face of the next generation of the game 
speaking out against it too, uh, or speaking for emotion and against the, the repression of, of feeling and, and exuberance. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, uh, I'm on the side. I've, I've gotten to cover Jose Batista for several years and I've gotten to know him, uh, as reasonably well, I think. And to me, that emotion is so crucial for him. It's his fuel. And he doesn't do it to show people up. And, and, and if you can't give a guy leeway to be excited in that moment, in that inning, with that context, then what are we doing as a sport? Like, what is, what is Jose Batista supposed to do? He's supposed to hit that home run at that point in time, put his head down and run his bases like whole hum. It's just another thing. <laughs> like, like that, that to me is just, you're just taking the joy out of the game because who hasn't dreamt of hitting a home run in that kind of moment? you know, or delivering for your team, whatever sport it is, within that context. And, like, you should be excited, right? Like, that's one of the coolest things a baseball player will ever do, right? Absolutely. And so, and, and if we're going to if we're gonna destroy a person for, for embracing that and celebrating it, look, if you're Sam Dyson, I get why you're pissed, right? It sucks mm. to be on the other side of that. But you gave it up, and he wasn't disrespecting you. He was showing the, the sure, sheer joy of the game. And that if, you know, you had fist-pumped, if you had struck out, if Tyson's fist-pumped, if you had struck out Jose Batista, you would have understood that too. So I, 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 I see the whole debate thing. I don't think for Jose Batista that it, if it, I think it bothers him, but not to the point that it distracts him. I think he, he's more just, he just doesn't get it. And he's had to deal with that with his outbursts with umpires and other shows of emotion. And, and you know, the outbursts with umpires are a different thing because that has a negative impact uh, or can have a negative impact on him and his team because of the, the reputation you can gain with umpires, rightly or wrongly, fairly or not. Uh, but something like that, I think, you know, this should be part of the game. I think there's absolutely room for it. And, you know, so hopefully the, the younger generation of players that's coming up will, will make that the norm and we won't have this debate any longer. Yeah, I, I agree with you a thousand percent uh, on all of that. Looking ahead to 2016, uh, one of the most intriguing young pitchers in the game is 24-year-old Marcus Stroman. He's such a, a unique, bold personality. He's not afraid to express himself, show emotion on the field. When he tore his ACL last spring, the general consensus was that he was going to miss the entire 2015 campaign. Yet, he was back on the mound by the end of September, and he pitched like an ace in the postseason. How excited are the Blue Jays as an organization to have Stroman back healthy and at the front of the rotation heading into this year? Well, they really think that having Marcus Stroman for a full season will help soften the blow of David Price's departure. Because if you'll remember, you know they didn't have, they only had Price for two months, and he and he and Price were only together. Stroman made, I believe it was four starts in September and then the postseason. So it's not like they had the two of them very long. So if, if you have Stroman wire to wire and he's able to perform the way he did, that all of a sudden not having David Price doesn't hurt nearly as much. So the Bougies are very excited about him and he's really someone in a lot of ways that the competitive window beyond this season, I wouldn't say hinges on because it sounds, that's unfair, but. Right. His progression to, to A status will go a long way in, in setting this team up for for the for the years to come and whatever happens with Batista and Encarnacion long term. If you have Stroman, you know, fronting your rotation along with Donaldson, Tulowitzki, and Martin, you really got something to build around. 
Here's how interesting the Blue Jays are and, and how many storylines we have with this team. We've gone nearly 10 minutes without talking about the reigning American League MVP in Josh Donaldson. You know, as someone who's around the team every day, what was it that stood out to you or impressed you the most with Donaldson's first season in Toronto last year? I think the thing that stuck out about Josh Donaldson is just the, the compete level and the intensity that he played with every single day and that he was just his, 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 the relentless isn't even a strong enough word for the way that he plays. You know, I don't want to say he's reckless, uh, but you know, I think about the play in Tampa when Marco Estrada was, uh, was throwing a no hitter and he dove head first into the seats. And really, if a Blue Jay fan who happened to be at the seats at the Trump hadn't been there to, to save him, he might, he might have left a portion of his face on, on, his, on the chair in Tampa. But just playing with that level of determination, that level of fire, is uh, really changed the team. And he became someone that that the rest of his teammates gravitated towards. You know, he was part of a group that would sit around at the clubhouse talking minor points about of hitting, and that that club has just grown in terms of the players participating in it, and the, the constant exchange of knowledge is something that we haven't seen. Or in that fashion, we haven't seen on such a consistent basis for the Blue Jays in maybe decades. So, yeah, he brought it on the field, but he brought so much more, and that really transformed the team in a in a really significant way. That ended up, I think, being a significant factor in why they were able to reach the postseason. And Donaldson, of course, an offseason trade acquisition, and a storyline for me that didn't get as much ink as I think it maybe should have nationally, uh, at least in my opinion, was the departure of general manager Alex Anthopoulos, who was really the architect of last year's playoff team. Uh, when he left earlier this offseason, uh, it was at that time right around when uh, uh, former Indians GM and president Mark Shapiro took over as the Blue Jays team president in late October. He had some comments that were critical of Anthopoulos for trading some of the team's prospects at the deadline for Tulowitzki and Price. What were your impressions of Shapiro's comments at the time, and do you think that the Jays are ultimately going to regret letting Anthopoulos leave this offseason? Well, there's a lot there. Let's start with... Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I don't know that Shapiro was necessarily critical to the deal, but there were questions there was questions of what happens now that the cover was there. And, and really the, when you look at it, the Blue Jays went for it in a big way in 2015, and, and deservedly so. And it, and it ultimately paid off. But there's a comeuppance that they experienced to some degree this year, but it's really going to hit them significantly next year when they have, the, they're at least facing 10 potential free agents at the end of the 2016 season and a farm system that doesn't have, or will only have maybe one or two guys ready to, to replenish. And so that gap that's created, that was created in the farm system there's a price tag for it. And I think that's part of what was the discussion between Shapiro and Anthopoulos. It's, well, okay, now that this happens, how do you counter for that? And like, why did you do this? And mm. did that change the relationship? I'm not sure that was the tipping point in the relationship. But I think you had two very bright executives who had different worldviews on, on team building and approaches and the way you run a front office and all the different elements. And that that mix probably wasn't going to be healthy. 
Now, I, I my my sense is the process is going along with that. These guys are too smart to not figure out an accommodation and a way to work with one another. Ultimately, that didn't it didn't turn out that way. And one thing about Alex Anthopoulos, and he was, he's always been true to his word. He, he said that for him, who you work with is more important than the job title you hold and being comfortable in your environment. And he got my I, my guess is that he got the feeling that it wasn't going to be the same or it wasn't going to be too different to what it was, and that it wasn't going to be a good fit for him. So he decided to go somewhere where it, it's more of a fit with him. He's, he's close with that. He's been close with Andrew Friedman and Farhan excuse me, with the Dodgers. So he, he's had good pre-player relationships there and found a fit. Now, ultimately, will will they come and regret it? That I don't know. You know, Mark, Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins are bringing a lot of structure to the organization that it hasn't had in a very, very, very long time. And, you know, you, you have to you look at what the Blue Jays accomplished last year and how great it was, but that's happened once since 1993 when they won the second of their two World Series. And there's been a lot of lean times in between. And there's been a lot of maybe flying by the seat of your pants is a little too strong, <laughs> but there hasn't necessarily been adherence to a a steady and consistent process on a regular enough basis. And that's probably been a factor in the lack of success. So it could be beneficial for this team to perhaps have a bit more structure and a bit more clarity. And and to, and to be honest, they've gotten a lot more front office resources and organizational resources with their high performance department, which could potentially bode very well for the team long-term. You, you touched on it earlier, but pitching is going to be an issue for the Blue Jays this year, uh, specifically looking at the starting rotation, though. You know, I love R.A. Dickey. The knuckleball's a lot of fun, uh, but he kind of is what he is at this point. Who needs to step up in the in the Blue Jays' rotation if they're going to repeat as AL East champs again this year? To me, the, the big question for this team, and, and this is both a short-term and long-term thing, is Aaron Sanchez. And you know, the, the Blue Jays are pretty torn right now between whether he's the fifth starter or they put him back in the bullpen for another year and maybe try to, you know, extend him for the 2017 season. But to me, it, the Blue Jays have been counting on Sanchez to be one of their front-of-the-rotation guys or to develop into one of their front-of-the-rotation guys. And, you know, as much as uh, I mentioned earlier, Marcus Stroman's importance to the window beyond 2016. You know, Aaron Sanchez is right there too, because if you've got that combination controllable, and at that point, you know, Stroman will be first year of arbitration next year, but he'll still be relatively cost-contained starting pitching, then you've got a lot more flexibility in the way that you can build your team. So, if Aaron Sanchez has a good season as a starter and is able to, you know, throw 160, 170 innings or so, um, and really show some of his potential, all of a sudden things are looking really good because he can dominate a game the way few other starters can. And then, you know, Jay Happ and Marco Estrada and Ari Dickey just have to be what they are. They don't have to be, uh, they don't have to have the greatest seasons of their lives. They just have to keep their team in games and the offense and the bullpen should be able to do the rest. So, so to me, you know, what they do with the fifth starter spot and especially for Aaron Sanchez and he ends up really taking a step forward. Could, could dramatically change the fortunes of that rotation. How do you see the ninth inning shaking out between Roberto Osuna, who was fantastic last year, and Drew Storen, who they acquired from the Nationals this offseason? 
my guess right now is that Drew Storen ends up as the ninth inning guy because they, they see Roberto Osuna as someone who can, you know, get you four or five outs on occasion. I don't think they want to do it on a consistent basis, but every once in a while, they, in a big spot, they can go to Osuna and get more than three outs. Uh, whereas Drew, Stor- Drew Storen has been in that one inning role and they're going to give them a bit more definition there. And the other thing I, I thought was a bit of a telltale sign is that they included uh, off bonuses in his contract for games fit based on games finished. Mm-hmm. So if you, you aren't going to make the guy a closer, you're probably not giving him that bonus clause. <laughs> that's a, that's a good point. Um, last bullpen guy I want to ask you about um, Liam Hendricks on the team last year. Were you surprised that the team dealt him away, especially considering they only got back Jesse Chavez, who, may or may not make the rotation. So why did they make that deal? Because Hendricks was really good last year. I was surprised that they, they traded him. What were your impressions of that trade? Well, uh, there's a couple things at play there. They did give up. The, the big thing is they gave up a lot of control in that deal, too, because they had, they had uh, a few more years of control, and they only got one year of control back in Chavez. But at the time, the Blue Jays were completely naked from a pitching standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. And they had no length in the rotation. They had no depth. I mean, the Mark Shapiro joked that they looked at uh, they looked at the the starting rotation for AAA Buffalo, and they had five guys named Blank, <laughs> and that that's really how dire it was. So you have to kind of keep that in mind that they needed someone who's going to protect them, who could start, who could give them quality innings of relief in the bullpen, play multiple roles, and and, and Jesse Chavez is one of those underrated glue arms, for lack of a better way to put it, that are, are crucial to the team, that he can just he just fills in gaps where 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 they're needed and is effect, and is effective at doing that. And, and those guys can be hard to find. So I think he his his importance is maybe underplayed a little bit within the context of how he's gonna fit in a number of different ways potentially in in the Jays rotation. In terms of Hendrick, the one thing that I would say in when you're looking at his numbers to keep in mind is that <clears throat> His numbers in high leverage situations were much different when than they were in you know mid to low uh, leverage situations. So I don't know if that was just experience and getting used to the the role as a reliever or or something else. But he wasn't the same pitcher when he was in high leverage spots. And I think when the Blue Jays ultimately looked at what they had and where they needed to get to, I think Jesse Chavez helps him this year more than Liam Hendricks would. That's a great point. Last question, Shia, and I'll get you out of here. Uh, you, you touched on Sanchez earlier as a guy to watch, but what's the most compelling player or storyline that you're looking forward to covering with this team in 2016? I mean, there, there's a lot there. I think ultimately what's going to be most compelling is going to be Jose Batista in his walk here. Uh, unless he gets signed to an extension of spring training, which at this point I wouldn't anticipate. He's He's been such a such a presence. He's, he's a guy who's going to go up uh, to the to the Blue Jays level of excellence uh, at some point once his career is over. You know, if if, uh, if there was any doubt before last year, I think the the bat flip homer has definitely sealed his place in franchise lore. But he's going to be uber motivated, and he's going to want to show a lot of people who have been doubting his ability to perform at his age and, and to to be able to continue to excel the way that he has. Uh, I think it's going to be easier to shut those people up. And uh, a motivated Batista who wants to shut people up is generally a pretty pretty entertaining one to watch. So 
I think he's gonna if he's got if he's got one more big year in him this year, then the Blue Jays are gonna be a really intriguing and tough team to watch, uh, tough team to play, a fun team to watch, tough team to play. And uh, I think there could be a lot of entertainment based off of that. Yeah, I'll tell you what, in the American League, there might not be a more fun team to watch on a daily basis than the Toronto Blue Jays. Shai Davidi, thanks once again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Well, thanks for having me. So that's going to do it for our conversation with Shai Davidi. You can check out his Toronto Blue Jays coverage all season long on Sportsnet Canada. You can also follow him on Twitter at Shai Davidi. Now let's send it back over to Ben Lindbergh to wrap things up. All right, that's it for the Blue Jays preview. Thank you to Joshua and to Shai Davidi. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash effectively wild. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or message us through Patreon. Today's thank yous to our supporters go to Jeremy Tice, Nick Gifford, Mike Flack, Xander Berg, and Jason B. Our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, comes out on May 3rd. You can pre-order it now. It's the story of how Sam and I ran the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league baseball team, last summer. You can also get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription by going to baseballreference.com and subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP. We'll be back tomorrow with the next team in our preview series, the Houston Astros. 